Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Amy Bird, the Harris wife theologian. Today we've got a special guest. He's actually a former student of mine. He occasionally steps in and teaches classes for me when I have something more important than teaching students to do, uh, or a better offer. And he's also assistant professor of theology at Cairn University, just outside Philadelphia. It's James Dolzel. Welcome to the program, James. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on. And James has achieved a degree of notoriety over the last few years by, of all things, defending the classical orthodox doctrine of God. Uh, <laughs> As we have found is, unfortunately, a little bit controversial. Yeah. And yeah you, ne- you never thought it would be avant-garde uh, to be <laughs> classically orthodox. Right, right. You did your PhD at Westminster course, which was later published as God Without Parts which I've seen described by both Protestant and Catholic theologians as one of the single best defenses mm. of divine simplicity over recent decades. And he has a forthcoming book, All That Is In God, subtitled Evangelical Theology and the Challenge of Classical Christian Theism, which is in many ways an attempt to apply at a more popular level uh, the insights that he developed in God without parts, and to bring home to the evangelical Christian audience that debates about the doctrine of God, while they might seem somewhat, for want of a better term, pointy-headed and ethereal, are actually extremely relevant to practical, day-to-day preaching and Christian living. So welcome to the show, James. Well, thank you. James, tell us uh, a little bit about why the topic of the doctrine of God has so gripped your imagination? I think in many ways I began to think that it was very important in the late 90s during the uh, open theist controversies when that was all the rage. And I followed that closely at the time and was very interested. My pastor, Phil Johnson, you know him, in California had done a lot to really instill in me the importance of holding the, the classical doctrine. But I think over time in studying different things, maybe especially with the help of Richard Muller's four volumes, Post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics, I came to realize that I had a maybe a somewhat narrow conception of what traditional Christian orthodoxy looked like with regard to the doctrine of God. I guess to put it more broadly, my concern generally is that we have, without really knowing it, and sort of unwittingly rendered God a finite being and are maybe even guilty of making him in our own image without ever really intending to do that, but nevertheless doing it. I noticed that Richard Muller actually written the introduction or the preface to your new book, uh, because he's a mutual friend of, of both of ours. And I think one of the striking things about Richard's work is he really has demonstrated beyond any reasonable doubt that the classic Reformed Orthodox doctrine of God is deeply rooted 
in the developments of the doctrine of God that we find certainly in the 4th century, Athanasius right. and the Cappadocians, but even more so in the 13th century with the work of Thomas Aquinas and the, and the post-Aquinas Thomist trajectory theology. When I look at the Westminster Confession and I see it, chapter 2 declaring that God is infinite in being in perfection and most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, it's impossible, is it not, James, to read that without hearing the voice of Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor in the background. Yeah, right. Yeah. If you don't know the angelic doctor, then you don't know that's whose voice it is. Sure. But it took me some time to find my way to Thomas. And I have to confess that I was very wary of, of engaging him positively. I, I had only heard nothing but negative things about him and to beware. And he would conflate nature and grace and that it was all very dangerous. And I think it was probably reading Muller who had a much different outlook on Thomas, a very positive one, saw Thomas as really a, a source for much of Reformed Orthodoxy, at least in terms of its doctrine of God. And then finding that some of my favorite Puritans like John Owen were actually very positive toward Aquinas in defending the classical doctrine of God against the Socinians. And that, I think, at least made me willing to go back and see that some of this language and things we took for granted in the Reformed tradition in the 17th century would have been derived from their understanding of Thomas and, and maybe some others, Anselm and Bonaventure, but Thomas maybe most dominantly. James, I was wondering, I got most acquainted with your work and got a hold of a copy of God Without Parts last summer in conjunction with the whole controversy surrounding the Trinity and the eternal subordination debate. And just knowing snippets about your background. By the time you got to writing that work, what were the most significant things that had changed in your conception of God as you had come to really embrace what we would call the, you know, the classical categories of the doctrine of God? What were some things that you had to maybe sort of dispense with that had been perhaps really important to you when you were younger? That's a good question. Some of it wasn't so much dispensing. Well, some of it's dispensing. I'll say something about that in a moment. But some of it was also just reconfiguring. Mm -hmm. And if I can think back to how I approached the doctrine of God as a young Calvinist in the mid and late 90s, it would have been with sovereignty as a central dogma, mm. where as long as you can say God is sovereign— any other number of things that we might have historically confessed about God were up for grabs. Yeah. You could retool, and this especially, you could retool divine immutability right. so long as you maintain sovereignty. So that what had happened, and I didn't realize I had adopted this, I had really let go of the doctrine of immutability, which if you had asked me, it would never have crossed my mind I was doing that. But I had really let go of that doctrine and really swapped it out for a doctrine of self-controlled mutability, mm. in which it really turns out that God's being really is open to becoming what he eternally is not. That is to say, the way I put it in my book in a sort of egg-headed way is the acquisition of actuality. And I guess I had this sort of central dogma view where as long as you could say God was in control of the new states of being he was taking on, then nothing could really go wrong because, if anything, Calvinism at its, you know, way, way down, what Calvinism is really about is God controlling stuff. Yeah, that's interesting because I noticed the same things about some of the well-known criticisms of open theism. 
that, that right. came out and were very influential. I was troubled by what they were willing to kind of, I don't know, give away in order to try to just deny open theism. But they, it's almost like they were trying to seek a compromise of some kind. I'll confess that at the time, I couldn't really understand that what they were giving away was that significant. I mean, I, I knew that Bruce Ware was giving away absolute mutability. Yep. He says he's giving away absolute right. mutability. But of course, he was hastening to say, but I'm elevating sovereignty to make sure things don't go haywire, so to speak. And the things he held on to were things like... Um, predestination and exhaustive divine foreknowledge, which of course open theism had abandoned. And to me, as a young Calvinist, that sounded like, you know, 100 proof Calvinism. Right, what more right. could you ask than pure sovereignty? But um, what, I, what I've come to see, and it's taken me some time, maybe I'm just slow, is that when it comes to ontology, our understanding of God's being, mm -hmm. Bruce Ware's understanding of God's being is not really different than that of the open theist. Hmm. The real difference, if there is any, is not with regard to whether God is open ontologically to becoming something he was not. The real contest between where and open theists was, is really the question of who ultimately controls the changes that God yeah. undergoes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's where the quarrel really was for him. It's with who's in control of the changes God's undergoing. But let's all admit, let's all concede that God's undergoing these changes. Mm. Wow. Uh, yeah. I had even, I little confession, I had even written a paper, this is 16 summers ago now, uh, <laughs> when I was in my MDiv, on divine impassibility. And for many years, I'd forgotten completely that I had written this paper. And a few years ago, our family was moving and I was getting rid of some some old papers. And I found this paper on impassibility that I had written. And I thought, wow, I don't even remember writing this. I wonder what position I took. <laughs> so, I, so I'm reading through this paper. Right. This is before blogs and before everyone had the need to right. yep. you know, post every thought yep. they ever had online. So far as I know to this day, myself and the professor are the only ones who've ever seen this paper. <laughs> But I'm reading through it, and I mean, page after page, I'm thinking, this is awful. <laughs> I, was, I was critiquing John Calvin's, you know, exegesis of Genesis 6, and I was critical of Paul Helm, who would many years later become a friend of mine. And I finally turned about halfway through the paper, and I started seeing the sources for all this. And it was uh, John Frame and Bruce Ware. Wow. And that's who I was leaning on. And I had completely forgotten that I had written this, but I could see that in... Yeah. You know, whatever it was, 12 or 13 years ago. That was one thing that really blew my mind uh, during the Trinity debate because it was a real eye opener. I expected lay people like myself to be less familiar with, you know, classical Christian theism, but my eyes were right. really opened to the high amount of scholars and seminary students and pastors and Christian authors who um, were not familiar with classical Christian theism. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's a, that's something that does concern me. Part of that motivates the new book to just say there's more than sovereignty if you're going right. to be, you know, confessionally reformed. Or I should even go broader than that and say if you're going to be just broadly and traditionally Christian, right. you're going to have to say more than just God controls things. <laughs> this, I mean, one of the frustrations, it's not a frustration, but it's a, it's a sad indictment, I suppose. When I think of if somebody would come to me and say, point me to a really good scholarly book that defends immutability, I'm probably going to look to Thomas Wayne Andy or a Roman Catholic author 
to provide that today. Right. It's hard to find a Protestant theologian who is defending the classical position that's really at sad. any kind of sophisticated mm-hmm. level. That's, that's really hard. Carl, you might not remember this, but 12 or 13 years ago, I, I don't even remember last week, James. So, <laughs> no, you yeah. know what? Well, then, yeah. then just you'll just have to take my word for it. <laughs> Twelve or thirteen years ago, I had a class with you on John Owen in London at the John oh, Owen yeah. Center. Yeah. yeah, and this was still at the point where I had just purchased Muller a year or two before and was just starting to wade in, hadn't completely shed what I now call theistic mutualism. But I knew I loved John Owen, and so I'm taking this class from you on Owen. And uh, at one point in the class, two things I remember, more than two things, but there was one statement you made. You said something about how about how classic rock and classical theology just go together. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, well, I think I agree with you on the classic rock. I'm going to have to look into <laughs> classical theology a little more. <laughs> And then the second one was in a discussion on the doctrine of God, you actually recommended that we read Thomas Wayne Andy. Oh, yeah. And it was in the context of the open theist debate, and you made a comment that if we wanted a more thorough and robust response to open theism than what was being offered by evangelical Calvinists, that we should read Thomas Wayne Andy, mm-hmm. this Franciscan friar. And I'm thinking to myself, is this is this just Carl being provocative for the sake of being provocative? I'm never provocative for the sake of it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I took it with enough seriousness to actually uh, to buy Wayne Andy and read it. And uh, I can only say you were exactly right. Not that I agree with every last thing he might have right. said in his book, Does God Suffer? But it actually helped me to understand Stephen Charnock and John mm. Owen and Francis Turretin much better than having read even someone like Charles Hodge would have helped me understand those guys. It's interesting. That reminds me of another anecdote. I think it took place after that class. I was visiting Richard Muller up in Grand Rapids. He and I became friends, I guess, about 20 years ago when I was on a a research fellowship at Calvin. And over a drink one afternoon, he said to me, you know, all of this fuss about the doctrine of Scripture in Protestantism, he said, to me conceding the simplicity of God, compromising on the simplicity of God. He said, that is even more deadly. And I remember at the time thinking, well, is that Richard just being deliberately provocative? <laughs> as you would say. Yeah, Not that right. he's ever deliberately provocative. <laughs> but I went away and thought about that. And looking at the history, it is fascinating that the modern Protestant evangelical imagination is very gripped for obvious recent historical reasons by debates over inerrancy, inspiration, biblical authority, to the extent that I think we see that as the key problem. And if we can get our doctrine of Scripture right, then everything else is going to be fine. Either it's it's fine or is of less importance. Historically, Richard was absolutely correct. If you go back to the 17th century and look where Protestantism went wrong, it's Socinianism. And certainly the early Socinians had a very high view of Scripture, a very high view of Scripture, but it's their anti-metaphysical biblicism, it's their deviation from classical theism that ultimately undoes them. The doctrine of the Trinity is unsustainable. And I remember Paul Helm commenting to me about the open theist thing, saying God's foreknowledge is almost a sideshow because what they're conceding in that actually makes a doctrine of the Trinity, unsustainable in the long run. 
And because that's a difficult argument to grasp and it doesn't grip the popular mm -hmm. imagination, it's a hard one to communicate. But historically, that's true. Deviations on the doctrine of God are as deadly, if not more deadly, than deviations on the doctrine of Scripture. You raise an interesting point. I want to just say two things off of that. I have a statement in my book from Frank Sheed, who was a lay Catholic writer in the early middle part of the 20th century. And at, a, um, at some lectures given at Cambridge in 1930, he said these words. He said, a study of what is happening to theology in its higher reaches would almost certainly take as its starting point the attribute of simplicity and show that every current heresy begins by being wrong on that. There was a day I would have read that and not had any idea what he meant. But now, over time, I've become convinced that he's right. And let me springboard into one other thing. You mentioned the doctrine of the Trinity and, and how Paul Helm was concerned that if we concede immutability and simplicity that we lose our doctrine of the Trinity. I think that strikes people as odd because, if anything, it seems like what we all know is that God is triune. Now, what we're not quite sure of is whether, in fact, he's simple or whether simplicity can be squared with triunity. And in fact, when I had written my book on simplicity earlier, one response I had from a friendly reader, someone who actually agreed with the main thesis of the book, was a comment to the effect of, well, this is all well and good, and I think I agree with what you're saying, but of course, if it conflicts with the doctrine of the Trinity, it's simplicity that's going to have to go or be modified. And I didn't know how to respond at the time, but I remember thinking something about that doesn't seem quite right to me. And in the five years since then, I've actually come to the view that, in fact, it's the opposite. In the fourth century, it was your version of the Trinity that was suspicious if it didn't square with simplicity. Mm -hmm. It was exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the Trinity pulling all of theology proper along. There were actually certain fundamental pieces of theology proper, a centerpiece of which would have been the doctrine of simplicity, that was unquestioned by everybody. I mean, if you think about it, the doctrine of simplicity was not questioned by the Arians or by the Orthodox. This was the one thing <laughs> nobody questioned. Yeah. And so, it was, it's an interesting, now we have the assumption that we can get a doctrine of the Trinity without ever bothering with simplicity, whereas I make the strong claim in, in one chapter in the book that, in fact, without a doctrine of simplicity, it's not clear why we would need a doctrine yeah. of the Trinity since mm. any number of compositional unities a la tritheism would do the job just as well. That's exactly the point that our friend Scott Swain makes. If mm. you don't have simplicity, then you don't need the Trinity. Yeah, and I think he's got that exactly right. He's been very faithful to express that clearly. Well, and the early books of Augustine's De Trinitate make that point again and again. And Augustine clearly doesn't think that he's doing anything controversial or anything exceptional or creative at that point. Right. And isn't it amazing? You know, you made the point earlier about the doctrine of God in relationship to our doctrine of Scripture. You know, one of the things that we saw last summer, and, and Amy and I, you know, without PhDs, but reading enough and following enough to understand the arguments at stake, again, one of the things we saw is that you had men who confess everything we confess about Scripture, confess everything we confess about substitutionary atonement and how important those things are, mm. have written and said things about the Trinity that are crazy, right. that the Trinity is analogous to a husband, wife, and child. 
and on and on it goes. Without meaning to be tasteless, things that would have got you burned right. in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. that's a rather tasteless way of putting it, but, but that's, that's, how so seriously yeah, that's how seriously the Reformed and the Roman Catholics right. would have taken the issue in well, the 16th century. Well, and that's, that's where I want to interject in here, because we're using all these words like divine aseity and immutability and pure actuality and, and even something that sounds simple like simplicity and God being without parts. These are a lot of big words a lot of lay people probably mm-hmm. aren't used to hearing um, and hearing used that way. Why are these matters important, not only for the academic, but also for the ordinary lay person? And since we're talking so much about simplicity here, divine simplicity and God being without parts, can you break down for the regular lay person what that means? Sure. That's a, that's a tall order, but I'll give it a shot. Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, the doctrine of simplicity and all of its nuances is obviously not simple, but I think that the very core of it is, and I think the core of the doctrine is one that most Christians already hold to, which is basically this. If I were to ask the average Christian layperson, does God depend on what isn't God in order to be God? They might look at me kind of funny, like that's a strange way of asking a question, but it I think they would understand the question, does God depend on what isn't God in order to be God? Yeah, exactly. I think that's everybody's gut reaction as a Christian is, of course not. I mean, that almost sounds blasphemous to say Mm so. It does. Well, simplicity is really just a way of elaborating and nuancing that basic conviction. Mm -hmm. It's basically an argument that if God had constituents of being, if there was a bit of this and a bit of that in God, so that God was really just the sum total of parts, whether those are physical or non-physical, like metaphysical parts, or, you know, a bit of intellect and a bit of power and a bit of goodness and a bit of wisdom, you know, mix it together, shake well, and voila, God, (laughs) Uh, you know. I think people realize that there's something just fundamentally sinister about that notion of God. When we start making God, for instance, take on new attributes, intrinsic attributes of being, or new states of actuality, that God begins to be or exist in some way that he didn't before, we have in fact slipped without noticing probably into that very conception where God has states of being that are not really identical with his own godness, but there's some new, newly acquired state of being. And I think why this matters, why the layperson should care beyond perhaps even just recognizing that there's something sinister in that notion, I think the reason they should care is because the dependability of God rides on this. Mm-hmm. If God himself is made of parts, then God himself depends on something more basic than the totality of his being for the totality of his being. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then your faith really should be directed to whatever that is that he's depending mm-hmm. on, not really to him. He's just sort of in the process. Not depending God. On, not, yeah, really, it comes down to that because it turns out that all things are not from him and through him and to him, Romans eleven thirty six. If, in fact, he depends upon constituents of being more basic than the totality of his Godhead. That's really well put. That is really, and I want to encourage lay people to read your book for that reason. There's a lot of big words in there, but you break them down well. It's easy to read in that way. And just like when you go to the doctor, you know, you might be experiencing some painful symptoms and you describe those, you expect the doctor to be able to put those in proper medical terminology to be precise and to help with a cure and to help you to be healthy again and so these terms are important to use for that reason and if we care about theology who god is 
this is important to learn about. I like to say to my students, and not to be too cheeky about it, but I, I will often say, the reason you should care that God is without parts, it's only because he's without parts that he will not fall apart on you. Right. Yeah, that's um, a really good and, while that sounds cute, I think there's a lot in that, mm-hmm. which is to say, if God isn't made of parts, he can't fall apart. That's good. He can't be dissolved or fail to be all that he is. As simple as that. And, and, and so the point being is that when we talk about things like the, 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 the classical doctrine of God and things like aseity and simplicity and immutability, we're not just engaging in you know, esoterica. We're dealing right. at a fundamental level with things like our faith. Mm. our trust in God, our devotion to God, doxology, these things that are at the heart of who we are as humans. And so it matters. It ought to matter to us to get God right. And one of the things I saw this summer in the Trinity debate was that there was a, a cavalier attitude that, hey, we can just agree to disagree on such important things as the relationships between the persons of the Trinity. Right. And that was really disheartening to see that. And you, James, have been you know somebody who, because of your book on simplicity and various lectures, which I would encourage you all to um, go to YouTube and put James's name in, James uh, Dolezal. There are some lectures online that you can find from him that are really helpful. He's an engaging lecturer. You'll enjoy him. If you go to Google and put his name in, you'll get some really fun comments there. <laughs> oh, probably so. Probably so. Yeah, you don't, you don't say the things that don't James- Don't believe everything you read. That's right. That's right. You don't say the things that James says, like, excuse me, sir, but what you think about God is wrong. You don't say those things without making a few enemies here and there. But we're glad that you're willing to do that, James. And we do want to encourage folks to check out his new book, All That Is In God, Evangelical Theology and the Challenge of Classical Christian Theism. And we want to tell you that we have some copies of that book to give away. If you'll come to mortificationofspin.org, you can enter a drawing. We've got several copies to give away. And if you don't win a copy, then go out and buy a copy. This is the kind of good theology that we would love to see people reading and enjoying and growing from. And so please do that. And James, thanks so much for, uh, for taking time to be with us. This is a really helpful discussion And I know that our folks will enjoy it. So thank you so much for being on with us. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And everybody out there, until we speak again, thanks for joining us on Mortification of Spirit. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Was there kind of one big defining moment, or was it a longer, drawn-out, more subtle process? For me, it was definitely a longer, Mm -hmm. subtle process.
process. But to see that kind of thoughtful ordering of things and the protection that that affords to churches, to pastors, to the laity. And I really had to understand covenant theology. Right. To understand baptism. Right. But I still don't know what that means to redeem the culture. Right. I don't know what it means. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. We do as little preparation as possible, yeah. you know, just to, just to keep it scary. Oh, great. Good. Well, I'm, I'm scared. I don't usually do this. So, you know. <laughs>